Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite to open to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. I love this view from here, seeing everybody opening up their Bibles and hearing the pages turn. Thrills my heart. Some of you may have heard, or some of you may have never heard, of a man named Harold Camping. He was the late pastor, he was a radio preacher, he was a prophecy guy. Uh, He had this ministry called Family Radio. It was out of California. It reached thousands of households across America through the airwaves. Well, he predicted back in the spring of 2011 that Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. He said that's going to be when the rapture happens and then afterwards there's going to be six months of mayhem on planet earth. Millions of people are going to die. And then on October 21st, 2011, the world would finally be destroyed. Now he had earlier predicted that this would happen on September 6th of 1994. So his ministry spent over $5 million dollars putting billboards all across America saying the end is near. Get ready because on October 21st, 2011, that is the day. So many of his followers started getting rid of their retirement, getting rid of their 401k, selling their homes, selling their stuff, just getting rid of everything because that was the date. Well, here we are. May 21st, 2011, nothing happened. And people said, well, camping, what's going on here? You predicted the end of the world. Well, he said, no, that was actually a spiritual, a spiritual coming, a a spiritual judgment. And it's basically helping us to get ready for the real date, which was October 21st, 2011. Well, when October 2011 came and nothing happened, there was radio silence. The ministry pretty much went dead. Now, behind the scenes, Harold Camping admitted to the fact that you really can't predict the end of the world or the second coming. And in March of 2012, he actually admitted, to his credit, that he was sinful in trying to set dates, and he repented of that. And to this day, family radio was all but dead, and he died back in 2013. The sad thing is that His predicting of dates influenced millions of people in a very negative way to kind of get rid of their stuff. And then when nothing happened, basically he and his ministry pretty much looked foolish. You know, there's a lot of confusion and wild fascination concerning the second coming of Christ. This topic's on many people's minds because of the craziness of the world in which we live. Even on Wednesday night, the question was asked, why is God being so patient and not judging the earth? It seems like we we should see the end by now because things have gotten so bad. And so the question you ask is, can it get any worse than this? 
How bad does it have to get before Jesus does come back? Now, there's a mystery to the second coming in a sense that we don't know when Jesus will return. But the Bible does give specifics concerning the day of the Lord. Now, I want to help you understand some, 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 some terminology here. If you go back and you read your Bible, especially First and Second Thessalonians, this event has two names. It's the same event, but it's told from two different vantage points. It's called the second coming of Christ, and it's also called the day of the Lord. It's the same event. The perspective of the second coming of Christ is for us as Christians. It's the blessed hope. It's the joy that we await the return of our Savior, the second coming. But that same event, Paul also calls the day of the Lord. And that is the day of judgment for those that are unbelievers. And so Jesus, in this passage before us, is going to answer the question about his second coming. So, let's read together Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus provides for us four key teachings on the second coming of Christ. So let's explore these together this morning. Here's the first. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. Now, in verse 20, the Pharisees ask a very legitimate question. What's their question? When? 
When is this going to take place? When is the coming of the kingdom? When's this going to happen? Now, you need to understand something. These Jewish leaders and those Israelites during that day did understand that there would be a future day, a future day of judgment, a future day where the kingdom would come. They understood that. What they missed, though, was the most important feature of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom, Jesus, their Messiah, standing right in front of them as the king. And Jesus tells them something very interesting. He says there in verse 20, when they say when, he says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Observed. If you go back and look at that rare Greek word, I think it's the only time it shows up here in the New Testament. It means to calculate by date. Try to figure out the date. Try to, try to look with the human eye and, and try to figure things out. Think about the kingdom of God for a moment. Do you know where its headquarters are? Do you know where the geographical boundaries are? Do you know where the castle is, where the kingdom is? Can you observe the kingdom of God with your physical eye? No, it's invisible. It's spiritual. There are no headquarters. There are no geographical boundaries. Now, think about the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world, you can go to geographic locations. You can go to capital cities. You can go to headquarters. You can go to buildings. You can go to castles. You can go to fortresses. You can go and find the sometimes corrupt leaders of these world kingdoms. And these kingdoms do not last forever. And so God's kingdom is different. You can't plan it. You can't see it. You can't put it on your calendar. Christ is the king of his kingdom. But notice what Jesus tells the Pharisees. Very interesting. In verse 21. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of, the God, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, the kingdom of God is already here. The kingdom of God is already in your midst. Now, what, is it, what does it mean that the kingdom of God is already there in their midst as the Pharisees? Now, remember, when Jesus was baptized, he came out of the Jordan River, baptized, and he began his public ministry. And what was his ministry? His ministry was to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was to preach the kingdom. Luke chapter 8, verse 1, Soon afterwards he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Jesus has come preaching the kingdom. Jesus has come as the king of the kingdom. And so it's a good question the Pharisees ask, when is this going to happen? And Jesus says, now wait a minute, before we get to that future, understand the, the truth here that I'm the king of the kingdom and I'm here now. And I'm preaching the gospel of the kingdom in your midst. But before you get to the future, the end of the age, Jesus reminds them in verse 25, the timetable. What has to happen? Look at verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Before there's the second coming, there's got to be the cross. 
He must suffer on the cross. He must be rejected. And the way it's worded in the original language is this isn't a divine imperative. These things must happen to Jesus. He must fulfill the timetable. He's got to die on the cross for our sins. He's got to rise again from the dead. He's got to ascend back up to heaven where he is now. And then he'll come back as the coming king. Now remember, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees here. And they did not realize that the Messiah, the king of the kingdom, was on hand in their midst right then and there in front of them. It's not as if Jesus hadn't done enough to prove that he was who he said he was. He's been performing miracle after miracle, had he not? Look at last week, we saw he healed ten lepers, right? Fed the 5,000, cast out demons, doing miracle after miracle. So the issue for these Pharisees was a lack of faith in Jesus as their king. They were focused on externals. What's the date? What's the timing? What's the sign of the times? The physical issues related to the kingdom. They got caught up in the future, not thinking about today. What they didn't understand was in order for you to be ready for the second coming of the kingdom Pharisees, you need to be ready for Jesus in your midst right now, and you need to believe in Him as your Messiah. And that's what they were missing. They didn't understand. The when question's a good question. But that's not the most important question. Yes, we want to know when are you coming back, Jesus, but to the Pharisees, it's like, listen, I'm in your midst right now. I'm the king of the kingdom. I'm standing before you right now. What's your problem, Pharisees? Repent and believe in me right now. Sadly, Many focus on the end times and the second coming, and they can get so wrapped up in setting dates and getting the calendar and looking at the the, the signs of the times. And, And I'm not necessarily against that, but if that's all you do when you don't focus back on the cross... In, in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the need to repent and believe in him, you've lost the forest for the trees. <laughs> yes, we, we want to kind of think about when Jesus is going to come back, but the question is, are you going to be ready when he comes back? And that, that comes with the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection. So be careful not to be so focused on the signs of the times that you lose focus on the real reality, and that's the fact that Jesus must suffer on the cross and die and rise again. And, and, and the cross... The resurrection are what's most important right now to be ready for his second coming. So the first issue we see here, Jesus says, listen, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. It can't be observed. It's invisible. And as a matter of fact, I am the king of the kingdom and I'm standing right before you Pharisees. Your need is to trust in me as your Messiah. Now, let's get to the future. Because Jesus does address his second coming. So what's the second issue about the second coming? There's a lot of seconds in this second point, okay? Second. Second. The second coming of Christ will be visible to all. It will be visible to all. Now, in verse 22, Jesus addresses something to his disciples. He turns to his disciples in verse 22. He's done talking to the Pharisees. Now he turns to his disciples in verse 22. And he says, the days are coming when you're going to desire to see me, but you'll not see it. In other words, Jesus is telling them, once I go back up to heaven and I'm gone, you're going to want to see me again, but you're not going to be alive during the second coming. So Jesus basically says, original disciples, you're not going to see the second coming, or you're not going to be alive when I come back. But what he does say is that there's a longing there 
for them to see the Son of Man. He says there, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you'll not see it. It'll be your desire. You'll want to see the second coming. Now, that was addressed to the apostles who would die, but that should be our desire as well. Is your longing for the coming of Christ? Paul calls it the blessed hope. In Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you waiting with expectation for Jesus? Are you longing for Jesus to come back? We read it earlier at the beginning of the sermon, I mean the beginning of the service, Revelation 22.20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's the last words of the Bible. I'm coming soon. And the attitude is, Come, Lord Jesus. We long for your coming. We want you to come. We, we want to see the second coming. We don't know when, but we know it is going to happen. Now, how does Jesus describe it? Notice what he says there in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. The second coming of Christ will come like lightning. Now think about lightning. Can you predict lightning when it's going to strike? It's sudden. It's bright. It's visible to the night sky. And it's usually accompanied by thunder which is loud. So let me just tell you this. The return of Christ will be glorious, visible, loud, and universal to all. Every eye on planet Earth will see Jesus come back. They will see it. It will be universal to all. Revelation 1-7. Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Every eye will see him when he comes on the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The second coming of Christ will be loud. It will be visible to all. It will be glorious. Now, we can't set the date, but we can sure wait for His coming. In Revelation 22, 12-14, Jesus says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. I'm coming soon, Jesus says. I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. Blessed are those who've washed their garments. In other words, are you ready? Will you have access to the tree of life on that day? Will you have access to the new heavens and the new earth? Will you be in the right garments? In other words, have your sins been washed away by the blood of God? Christ when he comes back. So, number one, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. 
Number two, the second coming of Christ will be visible to all, like lightning, shining, flashing. But here's the third. The second coming of Christ will be sudden for those not ready. It will be sudden for those not ready. Matthew 24, 43 through 44, listen to this. This is Jesus. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's coming at an hour you do not expect. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It will be unexpected. It will be sudden. It will come upon people when they least expect it. 2 Peter 3.10 but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It will be a day when people are not expecting the return. And Jesus gives two illustrations from the Old Testament to, to kind of illustrate this. Noah and Lot. In the days of Noah, notice what he says there. Verse 29, I'm sorry, verse 25. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Remember how many years Noah spent building the ark? 120 years. And nobody had ever seen rain. He's out there building the ark, building the ark. People walk by. What in the world are you doing, Noah? I'm building an ark because it's going to rain. What's rain? Don't never, never seen that before. Now, Noah was a wicked generation. The, the, the generation of Noah was a wicked generation. But it was also a generation that did not expect the flood. So the focus here is on their wickedness, but more so on their unpreparedness. They weren't ready. They were unprepared. They were doing normal stuff. They were eating and drinking and hanging out with their friends and getting married and doing life as usual. Nobody in Noah's day ever thought a flood would come and destroy them. Now, I picture this, okay? Just picture in your mind. Husband and wife are there at the altar. They're, they're about to say their vows, and the pastor's about to pronounce them man and wife, and all of a sudden the earth starts shaking, and, and then it erupts from the, from the bottom, and the, it starts gushing out, and then the firmament opens, and it starts gushing down below, and the next thing you know, the whole wedding party soaked, husband and wife look at each other, and boom, everybody's dead in a flood. That's a happy ending to a wedding, right? Nobody that showed up to that wedding that day thought they were ever going to be swept away in a flood. They were unprepared. The flood came without any warning. Even though Noah had been preaching to them for 120 years, they weren't ready. Okay, the second illustration is in the days of Lot. Remember, Lot settled with his family in Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness, their perversity, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah by raining fire and sulfur down from heaven. So you look at verse 20, 
8, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The, the generation of Lot was wicked. A wicked and perverse generation, just like the generation of Noah. Both generations were unprepared. Nobody in Sodom knew that God was going to rain down fire and sulfur on them and sweep them away. And so they were not ready for the judgment. And here's the issue. People who are so clung to this world system are not ready when God is kind to send Jesus back in judgment. They're going to be tragically surprised at the second coming. Because at the second coming, God's day of grace is over. It's over. There's no more time. There's no more time to repent. There's no more time to, to kind of get your affairs in order. It is finished when Jesus comes back. And so these two illustrations, Noah and Lot, they do focus on the wickedness, but more so on the unpreparedness. They were unprepared. Didn't know a flood was coming. Didn't know fire was coming. Both of those generations were destroyed. Here's the fourth teaching from this passage of Scripture about the second coming. The second coming of Christ will bring both salvation and judgment. I want you to notice verse 30. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 31, on that day. There's a fixed day. It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of judgment. It's the day of His return. And notice what it says there in verse 30. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You know what that, if I were to tell you what the Greek word is for revealed, you know what it is automatically. It's the word apocalypse. It shows up in the very first verse in the book of Revelation. The appearing, the unveiling, the coming of the Lord. The apocalypse, the unveiling, the appearing. And Jesus says, when he comes back, you're not going to have time to kind of go upstairs and get your belongings or run around and try to get stuff out in your yard. Notice what he says there. Verse 31, on that day, let no one who's on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let not one who's in the field turn back. Those, those Palestinian houses were flat roofs, and so sometimes they'd hang up on the roof when it was cool, and then the coming of the Lord, you're not going to have time to run back downstairs and get your stuff. It's going to come suddenly. Back in 2013, I had many families in my former church in, in Black Forest whose houses were impacted by the Black Forest Fire. Um, it got really close to the church building, but two families, their house was totally burned down. And I can imagine just the, the anguish of seeing your house burned down. And what, what's your first reaction? You want to run in and you want to get your valuables. i got to get those, those, that jewelry. i got to get those pictures. i got to get those family heirlooms. I, I've got to get those important documents. And you want to run in and you want to get them, but you realize if I run into that house, I'm going to die. I'm going to burn. There's no time to go in and get those things out because the fire came suddenly. And then verse 32, got the most poignant words in the Bible. Three little words. 
almost like Jesus wept. Remember Lot's wife. Okay, Jesus, what do you mean by that? Remember Lot's wife. Okay, what are we to remember? What are we to remember about Lot's wife? And by the way, Lot's wife does not have a name in the Bible. It's Lot's wife. She's never given a name. We don't know her name. She's just known by Lot's wife. What did the angels tell her in Genesis 19.17? What did the angels tell Lot and his family? As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. When God rains down fire and sulfur, do not look back. Get out of Dodge and keep running. Do not look back. What did Lot's wife do? Genesis 19.26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now why did she look back? Her heart was attached to Sodom. Her heart was attached to what she was leaving in that, un, in that ungodly and wicked city. She had to have just one last lingering look at the life that she was leaving. Her heart was still attached to Sodom. Her heart was not attached to escaping Sodom and going and following the Lord. J.C. Ryle said this about those who will not be ready at the second coming. I like this quote. The world is in their hearts, and their hearts are in the world. The world's in their hearts, and their hearts are in the world. That describes Lot's wife. You're attached to the world. You're glued to the world. And here's the sad thing about Lot's wife. She's in the process of leaving. She gets out of Dodge. She gets out of Sodom. And she almost gets to the hills. She almost gets to salvation, but she looks back. And she dies. I went back and read Spurgeon's sermon this week. He's got a whole sermon. The sermon's called Remember Lot's Wife. Spurgeon preached a whole sermon on three words. Okay, It was a pretty interesting sermon. But this is what he said in one, in one of the parts of his sermon. She was almost saved, but not quite. She was almost saved, but not quite. Does that describe you? You're almost saved, but not quite. I mean, you've been around the privileges of listening to Christian music and listening to sermons and being in the church and being around church people, and you've got all these privileges, and you're almost saved, but not quite, because your heart's still in the world. You still have all of these um, affections towards the lust of the flesh and, and the world and all of these things. You're almost saved, but not quite. You're glued to your possessions and to your worldly pursuits. And maybe one day you'll get around to trusting Jesus. And then in verse 34, Jesus talks about how his coming will actually impact people in the same family, maybe even husband and wife. I tell you, in one night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Could it happen in the same family, the same household? One's taken, one's left. Your coworker, you're out grinding, you're out working in the field, one taken, one left. Okay, this, this brings up a question. The day of the Lord will bring the fire of judgment. Notice there at the end when it says Sodom, 
On that day, the Lord went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them both. Zephaniah 2.3 Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The day of the anger of the Lord. Second Thessalon- Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 7-9 When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So on that day, when Jesus comes back in power and glory and in judgment, one will be taken and one will be left behind. What does it mean? Who gets taken and where do they get taken? And who gets left behind and what happens to them? Those taken denotes those who will be taken into the kingdom and saved. Those left behind are those who will face judgment. Think about it this way. Noah was taken into the ark for salvation. The rest of the world was left for judgment. Lot was taken into the hillside, into the city of, of escape. The rest of the city of Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah was judged. It's interesting how the book of Revelation describes hell as a place of fire and sulfur, the same thing that happened when God rained down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. Revelation 14.10 He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. One will be taken. One will be left. I want to remind you of what Jesus tells us in John chapter 14. Listen to the words of Jesus and see if you can't hear that taken language. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Jesus will come back and he will take us to the place he's prepared for us. We will be taken. Matthew 24, 30-31 Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Will be taken. The elect will be gathered. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we'll always be with the Lord. On that final day, Those of us who are in Christ will be taken to salvation. Those who are not in Christ will be left for judgment. And then there's one last image here that Jesus talks about. Verse 37. They said to him, where, Lord? Isn't that interesting, the disciple? Where? Shouldn't they have been saying when? They can't say when because Jesus already said you can't say when. I can't tell you where. Where the corpse is there the vultures will gather. 
All right. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, please. Revelation chapter 19. And I want to show you something that maybe you've never seen before if you've never studied the book of Revelation in depth. So let's look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's the whole of their sermon. But I want you just to notice what it's called. It's called the Supper of God. And who's gorging on who? In the Supper of God, because Jesus has come back, the birds are gorging on the flesh of those of the ungodly. It's the supper of God. Now, I want to show you earlier in this passage of Scripture, go back up to verse 6. There's two suppers in Revelation chapter 19. There's the supper of God, where the birds gorge on the flesh of the ungodly, and there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said this to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There's two suppers in Revelation 19. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a joyous experience where believers who have been taken to heaven will experience the joy of the Lord as their Savior forever. In contrast, there's the supper of God where when God comes and destroys his enemies on that final day, the birds will gorge on their flesh. The vultures will eat the corpses of the dead bodies. The second coming of Christ is a day of blessed hope for the believer. A day of the Lord, a day of judgment. But here's the most important question for you. It's the most important question. We can get to the forest of the trees and, and get into all this interesting stuff in Revelation, but here's the most important question. How do you escape the coming of the day of the Lord? Well, it's back in verse 33 in Luke 17. 
and you can turn back there, you can just listen. What does Jesus say in verse 33? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever who loses his life will keep it. How do you get ready for the second coming? You lose your life. Well, that sounds interesting, Pastor Sean. What do you mean you lose your life? You don't hold on tightly to this life. You don't hold on tightly to yourself, your desire, your dreams, your agenda. Jesus says there, I tell you, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. You know what that word preserve means in the original language? It means that you fight to the bitter end for your own possessions and your own comfort and your own desires. You know how you lose your life? You're not like Lot's wife. What did Lot's wife do? She turned back. She wanted to hold on to her life. She wanted to hold on to her worldly things. She wanted to hold on to her being in charge of her life. And she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So you give up all rights that you have to your life. You give up being the king of your life and you turn to the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, and you place your faith in him. You give up on your agenda, your dreams, your desires, your plans, everything that's about you, you give up and you say, I'm laying this at the feet of Jesus who alone has the right to tell me how to live my life and I surrender myself to the true king. That's how you get ready for the second coming. And when you give up your life, you find it. And what do you find? You find forgiveness. You find peace with God. You find that you'll be accepted by the Heavenly Father. You find that you'll have eternal life. You see, there's an urgency to this. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but there's an urgency. The second coming will be visible. It will be glorious. It will be wonderful. There will be the, the, the wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb. But for those who are not ready... Those who are not ready, those who are not prepared, it will be the supper of God. It will be a day of fire, a day of judgment, a day of birds feeding on the flesh of those who are destroyed by God. So trust in Jesus now. Don't delay. Trust in Jesus now so you can be ready for kingdom come. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. The prayers that we're all ready. We're all ready for your coming. But there's nobody in this room, Lord, that has not trusted you for salvation and they know in their heart of hearts that when that day comes, they're ready. They won't be unprepared. They won't be caught off guard, but they'll be ready. So, Lord, if there are people here today that need to trust you, Jesus, for salvation, to nail it down, to make sure they understand the truth, would today be their day where they lose their life in order to find it? Lord, these words should not scare us who are believers because we know it's the blessed hope of your return as our King but, Lord, it is a word of warning to those that are not ready. So help us all to be ready.
for that day. Help us to feel the urgency. Help us to feel the weight of what Jesus' words are here. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our Savior, you are our Lord, that you have come to conquer death, sin, and the devil, and that through you alone we can have forgiveness of sins, we can have eternal life. And so, Lord, we praise you for that. And, Lord, we do long for your return. We look at our nation. And we look at the depravity and the evil. And we wonder how you can be so patient. And Lord, we know that everything that happens in our nation that's good is an act of mercy. You're restraining judgment that is deserved of this nation. So Lord, in wrath, would you remember mercy? We know it's on your timetable when you come back, Jesus, and we know that there's things that maybe you have us to do. There's more people that need to be saved. There's more gospel work that needs to be done, and so, Lord, help us to be faithful as we wait your return. And thank you for mercy, Lord. I, I think if we're honest, we know. Individually. We deserve wrath. Individually, we deserve judgment. And we're thankful for your grace upon grace. But Lord, we know as a nation, even as a state of Colorado, we deserve judgment. So Lord, would you please be merciful? Would you help us to be faithful? And Lord, we do pray for your return. Would you come quickly? We cry out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Until then, help us to be faithful. And it's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.